Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're listening to this show, hoping to hear about how the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery or that all white Southerners were united in support of the Confederacy or that black Southerners were loyal and content to be held in slavery, then like Bogart and Casablanca, you've been misinformed. Unfortunately, many people still hold variations on those lost cause views. And according to Professor Adam Dombey, they haven't just been misinformed. They've been actively and consciously lied to since the late 19th century. We'll find out why he calls his book The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the... Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not from the Brewster Building tonight. The Brewster Building is closed, as is all of the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville. I'm not speaking for the campus or anybody involved with universities or anything else, just speaking for myself as always. It is March 25th, 2020, we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and thus uh, nobody's on campus. I'm broadcasting from home, which is not uncommon, but letting you know where, where we are tonight. I hope wherever you are that you are well and uh, taking the appropriate precautions wherever you are around the world, and we do get listeners uh, from many countries, according to the data that uh, that shows up here. So wherever you may be, I hope you're washing your hands frequently, keeping social distance from others, not mingling with people, and, and doing what we need to do to get this pandemic over with. 
it has certainly changed things here at East Carolina University, as it has, I'm sure, every university that is involved in it. We started online teaching this week. We had a two-week, we had an extra week of spring break that ended Monday, two days ago, and I've been teaching my two classes this semester, one of American history, uh, modern period, an intro class, and a Civil War class for upper-level students, and moved both of them to online. As it happens, we're in the midst of a switch in learning management systems this semester. We used to use Blackboard, and now we're used, moving to Canvas, and the the official switchover happens in September. This is the transition semester, and people had the option to stay with the old one or start with the new one, and I am hugely glad that I chose to start with the new one. While it does add to the difficulty as I'm learning to use a new system every week, it's a much easier system to use ultimately, and so uh, so it's working. But I'm learning it on the fly, and it, it's a challenge. There are new things to figure out how to do. And when I say that Canvas is easier to use than Blackboard, that's sort of like saying Bragg was a much better general than Gideon Pillow. Uh, so it, it, there's work to be done here. Earlier this week, I got two interesting, or interesting phone call on two topics related to the show. I'll share with you quickly before we dive in. One uh, one question was about the advertising policy here at Civil War Talk Radio. As I said uh, a few months ago, if you have enough money, I'm certainly not burdened by integrity and happy to allow you to purchase ads if you're willing to pay an exorbitant sum. But if you are just interested in advertising at a rational price uh, and have a product that relates to what we're gathered here to talk about, that's fine. If you want to advertise Civil War books or travel services or uh, something that would be of interest to the listeners, those ads are welcome. Uh, If you have dangerous products like e-cigs, I was approached about that. No, not interested. If you have irrelevant products like cowboy boots, no, unless you're willing to pay a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, Political advertising, no, there's enough of that elsewhere, uh, which led us to the second conversation, uh, totally off the track of the first one. Hypothetical, what if the United States had preferential voting in 1860? Would Lincoln still have been elected? Would people have been able to register their preferences differently? And, and this is a system where you get one ballot, and in 1860, where there's four candidates on the ballot, uh, you can vote for all four of them if you want. You can vote for three of them, or two, or just one. So if you have a protest candidate you want to support, you can still vote for a mainstream candidate. And the caller thought this might have led to the election of a compromised candidate instead of Lincoln, and you might not have had the war breakout. I don't see how that could have happened. Uh, I also don't see how people would split their ballots. If you were a Douglas partisan, you were not going to vote for Lincoln no matter what. If you were for Breckenridge, you weren't going to vote for uh, for Lincoln or Douglas no matter what, and, and so on. But it was an interesting discussion. Well... <clears throat> Let's bring ourselves up to date here. Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours won't be setting forth in May of 2020, but hopefully by October, when the next This Hallowed Ground is scheduled, it'll be, we'll be back up and running. I'll be happy to 
meet you there if you can sign up for one of those tours. Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College in June is, as of this date, March 25th, still on the books. And if that goes through, I look forward again to seeing a lot of you there. If you're not going anywhere and just staying inside, sheltering in place, which is good advice wherever you are, uh, you can listen to this show again and again next week. Uh, April 1st, our guest will be a returning guest. Sheridan Butch Berenger comes back to us with a book about uh, Thomas Lafayette Rosser. It's called Custer's Gray Rival. We'll follow that with a book co-written by Timothy Silver and Judkin Browning. And uh, Professor Browning has been on the show before, so we'll have his colleague uh, from Appalachian State, Professor Silver. Their book is called An Environmental History of the Civil War. On the 15th of April, Heather Cox Richardson has a new volume, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. I've heard people who don't know or care much about the Civil War talking about her a lot lately, so we'll we'll have an interesting conversation. Still working on a show for the 22nd. Schedule's been upturned by the current uh, uh, events. But we'll come back, uh, but we will have a live show on, on April 22nd, and we'll finish out the month of April 2020 with uh, Bert Dunkerley, Robert M. Dunkerley, officially, uh, and his book, To the Bitter End, Appomattox, Bennett Place, and the Surrenders of the Confederacy. So you can find out about all of those, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date there. Hopefully he's okay uh, where he is. And uh, you can always buy your books through there. Click on through, go to Amazon. Uh, If you can't find it at a local independent seller, that's your best bet always. Uh, But if not, you can help out the website by doing that. Before we bring in our guest, a quick apology to last week's guest, Mike Bonner, uh, who had that fascinating book on Confederate political economy. I was so interested in getting forward to the book that I forgot to acknowledge that uh, Michael Bonner is an alumnus of East Carolina University. He earned a history degree here back in the 1990s, before I was here. Uh, And I I was so eager, as I said, to get into the topic that I didn't acknowledge his pirate roots. Uh, So, Mike, if you are listening, uh, I say to you, arr, sorry about that. Uh, Tonight, our guest uh, is a assistant professor in the Department of History at the College of Charleston, Adam Dombey, who is the author of the book we talk about, The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. Professor Dombey, are you there? Uh, I am here and excited to be on this show. Well, welcome. Glad to have you. Um, can can we go by first names? Can I call yeah. you Adam? We, we, we haven't met formally. Please, um, please do. So, uh, and so, so, Adam, how are things? First, how, how's your family? How are you? Is everybody safe where you are? Uh, so far, everyone seems safe. Uh, I'm, you know, locked down in Charleston with my, my partner and my dog. And uh, it's, uh, hopefully I won't get on her nerves too much and uh, so that she throws me out of the house. Uh, but uh, we've mm. been doing well so far. My family seems seems good so far, but, you know... Who knows where this is going next? So everyone's a little uh, nervous, I think, um, obviously, and uh, taking as many precautions as we can to, you know, flatten the curve, as they say. 
that's the thing. We all have to work together to make that happen. Now, I mentioned briefly the or switch over from Blackboard to Canvas and trying to teach online. You guys are teaching online as well, I gather? Yeah, we, we switched over this week. We didn't get an extra week. It's sort of mid, we, we sort of, right in the middle of spring break, the word came down officially that the rest of the semester would be online. And so uh, we've been scrambling a bit, and as I think everyone is, and um, you know, that first class on Tuesday was, uh, that I, as my, I teach Tuesday, Thursday was, uh, right. a lot of it was just getting the students caught up on what we're going to do, you know, and, uh, and also sort of trying to make sure that they were going to be able to, and assuring them that they would not fail to fail the class if they couldn't access something that we were, you know, mm-hmm. that this was a, a, a process and that everyone needs to be flexible because we don't know what's coming next. And that I'm going to be flexible, and they need to be flexible, and we'll get through this together. And uh, and they're a good group of kids. I, I'm really kind of sad. I had, I had two great classes this semester. Um, one group uh, of honor students who were just really diving into their research when suddenly they're no longer able to go to the library. And mm-hmm. uh, and then my Civil War uh, seminar, I had another great group of class, students who were diving into their Civil War and Reconstruction research right when the archives had to close so we're uh, we'll make it through uh, it is going to lead to some changes in sort of expectations of papers though i think for a lot of professors yeah i'm definitely wrestling with that how what kind of research can we reasonably expect that can be done online uh it, it, it's just not the same i speaking of students they need to ask a, a personal uh question and we just started discussing this a little bit before the show uh, my daughter Maria was a student at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, graduated uh, two years ago, and she recalls you as her TA in a, a freshman year U.S. history course. Uh, does does the last name ring a bell for you? It, it does. I, I remember her uh, her quite well. Uh, she was a great student. I, I, I was going to ask about that. It was the next question. Did I get my money's worth in tuition? Um, that did she I don't do her know. work? <laughs> uh, she, she did do her work. I'm not sure she got her money's worth if she had me as her TA. But, uh, no, I, she was she was a lot of fun, and she uh, was a, a, a constant participant in class. And I, I greatly enjoyed her. She's one of the students that, even though it's been, oh, man, it's must have six, been. Six years now, six, I think. Six years ago, yeah. yeah. Uh, I still remember her her quite well. Well, I asked her by email the same thing today, and she said, first she said, I can't believe it's been six years, uh, but she remembered you conducting a very helpful uh, session for the students when they had to write their first paper, and she said, it was five pages long, we couldn't believe it, you know, as a freshman, they were stunned, the length, how would they ever write five whole pages, she writes for a living now, uh, as it works for a PR firm in Chicago, and uh, uh, five pages no longer daunts her, but uh, but she thought it was funny that that seemed so big at the time. Well, it's good to hear she's doing well uh, and, and has put her, her UNC education to to good use. Absolutely. Now, you obviously put your UNC degree to good use and that you're teaching College of Charleston, and congratulations on, on doing well in, in the ever-challenging job search. Uh one of the things that struck me reading this book was you make the comment that this book was not your dissertation. And typically, the first book one produces when you get a teaching, a, a tenure-track job, is turn your dissertation into a book. But 
you say in here this is this is not the case. Yeah, no, I did not. Uh, my dissertation will be book two, I hope, um, mm-hmm. if everything goes according to plan. I was uh, going to make it my first book. This was going to be book two, but a lot of events happened in 2015, uh, 2016, and then 2017 that really led me to put aside the other project and focus on this and then push this one as quickly as I could to get it written as I felt in the sort of after the the shooting in Charleston in 2015 and then the election of Donald Trump in 2016, I put aside my uh, dissertation because I didn't feel that book was as as urgently needed and I felt this book was. Well, this book certainly does address contemporary topics and is is focused um, quite heavily on North Carolina. I will say the title didn't didn't give that away uh, as much, but the stories local to the state of North Carolina, and particularly Silent Sam, the Confederate statue on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill, uh, feature prominently in here. I want to ask you about those, but we're going to take a quick break before we dive into that. Uh, so we'll, we'll come back in just uh, a few seconds. First, taking a short break, uh, we'll resume talking with our guest tonight, Adam Dombey, author of The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Adam Dombey. He's the author of The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. 
Adam, the the title doesn't pull any punches uh, as to where you stand in regard to this topic. The it's not just uh, a misremembering. It's not just the exaggerations of age that cause us to distort the past. Uh, you argue in this book that the lost cause is is more than sentiment and nostalgia. It is active fraud, fabrication. You use the word lie, and you explain why. Uh, can you talk about that? How the intentionality behind the lost cause that you found here? Yeah, and I. And to be clear, it's not always a lie that is overt. And sometimes you have fabrication for other purpose uh, that then gets consumed by, and, and used by sort of the narrative as time progresses. So there is elements of sentimentality and sort of blustering in one's own, sel- own self-image. But as a whole, it becomes comes a, becomes a lie. And what you see is that it sort of lies on multiple levels. We, we start at sort of the ground level, if you will, where the lies are just the little stories. The story of uh, Edward Cooper, the artilleryman who supposedly deserted and this beautiful letter that his wife supposedly wrote, which the punchline I'll ruin for you now is that he didn't exist. Um, and... Well, let's tell, for those who haven't read it, remind us of, of what that letter is about. It's a great story in the book. Uh, yeah, so Edward Cooper um, supposedly received a letter from Mary Cooper, his 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 wife, which uh, essentially said, we're starving here at home. We need you to come home. And so the story goes that he requested a, a furlough multiple times, and each time he requested his furlough, it's turned down. And so being a dutiful father, he does what a father must do. He deserts to go home to look after his family. And he gets home, and his wife grabs him in a hug, and she says, I'm so glad you got the furlough. And she can sense that he didn't have the furlough. And she says, you must go back, let us starve, but don't let your name be tarnished by a deserter. And so he goes back to the Army of Northern Virginia, where he is promptly court-martialed for desertion, sentenced to die despite the fact that the entire court is crying as they do it because of this letter, which they think is a totally fair reason to have deserted for. But luckily, generally grants him a pardon. And then at the next battle, he is mortally wounded. And his last words are to the general who ran the court martial. And he says, General, have I saved the honor of Mary? And he falls to his death. And and the letter has been used by many historians, including quite quite good historians, because it often was taken out of context. All the sort of fluff around the letter disappeared in many versions of the story, and we just had the letter, and the letter seems legitimate. So it turns out he didn't exist, and a lot of the details in the story around the letter actually give it away, if you look at it carefully. That there is no requirement for a sentence of death, for example, in a court-martial. And so... In the end, what happens is this story gets repeated again and again and ends up in the historiography. And you have these little stories like that, and that's the sort of base level lies that I'm looking at. But those lies work together to then create a larger narrative if you connect the dots of all these different little lies, these sort of anecdotal lies, the individual stories that are lies, to then create a narrative in which... You know, the Confederate soldier is the world's greatest soldier 
since the so the, since ancient Sparta and and these other lies allow this narrative in which every white Southerner supported the Confederacy and that the Confederacy fought not for slavery but for states' rights or any number of other various causes over time. And then that lie in turn, that sort of narrative lie that you get, which I call the false cause, has a purpose and is used by political figures and other individuals to uphold white supremacy. And so, and that's the biggest lie, of course, of all, that a racial hierarchy is a good thing. And uh, so obviously my own, my own biases are coming out there that I do believe uh, in equality. But the sort of levels of lies that we have sort of all operate on different levels, but all of them work together in the end to uphold a narrative of history that allows white supremacist ideology to flourish. Well, let's let's look at Silent Sam since you, that is in your first chapter, and yep. uh, and it ties together some of those threads you talked about. You know, little lies that that serve a bigger cause. Uh, the the statue itself is supposed to commemorate the students of the University of North Carolina who fought for the Confederacy. So one looking at it would assume that would be all all the students at the University of North Carolina, or at least all the students who served in the war. But you've got evidence that that's not the case. Yeah. Um, so the there's sort of a couple levels of this. To start with, they sort of present these these students who go off to war is all wanting to go. The idea being that the students, they all wanted to enlist, they all wanted to volunteer, is the story you get. And the truth of the matter is that frequently, many students didn't want to enlist and got deferments and are ultimately drafted in 64 or 65, including the two veterans who are speak at, speaking at the dedication. So Julian Carr, who's sort of a central figure for two of the chapters. I use him mm-hmm. sort of as our quintessential Confederate and Henry London, the two of them both were conscripted into the Confederate army. And so they sort of rewrite it so that they were volunteers and they also create soldiers. They claim that UNC produces these numbers of soldiers and they have this whole list of five major generals and eight lieutenant generals. I forget the exact numbers and a thousand privates. And the numbers, it turns out, were just made up. They aren't accurate. Uh, Carr and President Venable, the president of the college, made up the numbers in the weeks leading up to the the speech. And so he's literally creating fake volunteers that never existed as he's, as they're dedicating this, this monument. And in his dedication speech, he not only has this racist story that has become sort of well-known, but he also has lies about war record of the school. So what year was the dedication speech? Uh, 1913. Okay, so this is, so this is 50 years later, yep. and by this time, someone like Carr can make a speech and, and pose as a great Confederate warrior, because most people who remember he, he had to be drafted uh, aren't around anymore. Yeah, I mean, part of it is that the, you know, we the people aren't 
the records aren't always easily accessible either. They're up in D.C. at this point. They're not as readily accessible as they are today in the era of the Internet, where we can go on you know, Fold3 and pull up the compiled service records and look him up. But it was he and and the fact that he exa- he he began exaggerating his record at least as early as 1900 it looks like or at least other people did for him and so he 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 is able to do this because he is by this point he is the leading confederate veteran in all of north carolina he is the head of the north carolina division of the united confederate veterans and so he's sort of the leading spokesperson and he's the most popular speaker at confederate monuments so he really is sort of the the sort of quintessential Confederate veteran, and he has a very heavy influence in Confederate commemoration statewide and nationwide as well. Now, the speech that he gives is very significant because the statue that goes up in 1913 will stay there for over a century, and you know periodically there are, there are murmurs about is this an accurate representation of UNC's participation, is this the right thing to have in the middle of the campus? But there's no serious challenge to it until uh, the link between racism and the the statue is made clear by the dedication speech that that Carr gives. And that that speech comes out, uh, I think, was it 2011 that it was first written about? Uh, Yeah, so I... I I found it actually in 2009, but didn't write about it until 2011. Um, that was uh, I was a, a first-year grad student. So if there are any grad students listening, uh, your research uh, will often may, may go in places you don't expect. Uh, I can say that right now. But yeah, it really shifts in 2011 the debate from is this a monument to slavery to is this a monument to white supremacy. So so these. They build this monument and brag about their their white supremacy, and they would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for you meddling kids going in the archives. You're you're the Scooby Doo of this story, who who uh, actually goes in. Well, I guess the dog doesn't do the research, but uh, but you're the one who found the the speech in the archives in which he talks about uh, whipping a Negro wench uh, and bragging about it. And that changed the tenor of the whole debate over Silent Sam. Yeah, it does. And it's really interesting because this speech was unremarkable when it was given. It's so unremarkable that it doesn't get mentioned in the newspapers. It just says Julian Carr gave a speech. They have the full text of some of the other speeches, but Julian Carr's speech sort of gets skipped over. The only thing that really stands out about this speech, he frequently said things like, you know, this is a monument to white supremacy. That wasn't new, and to overturning Reconstruction. That was something mm-hmm. he said frequently at Confederate monuments, and he felt firm. He felt a firm belief that celebrating Confederate soldiers was a way to celebrate white supremacy, and he would say this. What was unique was that he actually talked about his own role in reasserting white supremacy after the war, his role in Reconstruction violence. And it, and I, I should be clear, I, I did stumble upon this in the archives, but I think. I'm not sure that I, I need much credit because I think the credit really goes to the activists who who took this speech and really ran with it and educated the Chapel Hill community in a way that puts professional educators to shame. Um, I mean, they, they shaped public opinion and they put it in op-eds, they talked to reporters, they went and they just stood in front of the monument on football days and talked to people and told them about it and got word out. They were the ones 
that did the education and and they really helped shift public opinion and so it's it's a fascinating example of how activists can take historical research and and leverage it and they similarly leveraged their own research it was a group of, i don't know who did the discovery specifically um on saunders hall which they changed the name of right um and they had a similar situation where uh, i think it was students found in the board of trustee meetings that the building saunders hall had been named after saunders specifically because he was a clans person a clansman you know and then that's why they named the building after him and that was uh, i guess too much and it was renamed and so unc's seen a couple places where Historical research has helped shift public opinion. When I got to UNC, nobody was talking about removing the monument. It just wasn't on the table. In 2017, you have, I forget how many departments, but numerous departments passing resolutions calling for its removal. And that sort of shift is is really brought about partially by historical research, but really, I think, by activists who did the job of educating people about that historical research. Well, the the power of the historical text in accomplishing that, I think, is is what uh, to me as a historian is, is gratifying to read about. We had uh, it, here in Greenville, we had a challenge to Acock Hall, a residence hall uh, named for Governor Acock, and uh, the students who protested that just papered the the campus with flyers consisting of nothing but excerpts from Acock's own speeches in which he talks about the importance of white supremacy. And there were no other words on these papers, just historical text. And the board of trustees came around and, and the name was gone. Uh, the, the impressive thing is not, I mean, the activism is, is what makes it happen, but the use of, of historical documentation to change people's minds uh, to suggest that fraud and fabrication can only last so long, sooner or later, the historical record will speak for itself. Uh, it's something I've always believed through my whole historical career. It's been under severe challenge lately, but I still maintain that, and I think the Silent Sam story helps uh, uh, vindicate that. The, the you, you refer to monuments like Silent Sam and other ones as victory monuments, which I thought was an interesting characterization. Um, one might say, aren't these just participation trophies for the losers, the second place finishers? Uh, but you argue that they actually are celebrations. Uh, what what did the Confederates of 1913, let's say, have to celebrate? Yeah, I think this is, I actually, I gave a paper once at a conference called Participation Trophies in Stone, and I was hoping it would, you know, attract people by being <laughs> controversial. Um, but, uh, I don't think they're participation trophies. I, I do see them as victory monuments because they, they get put up in North Carolina, especially. You see the surge of public ones shows up from 1901 on. That's when you sort of have this. And what do they have to celebrate in 1901? Well, 1901 is a really important date if you know your North Carolina history because it in 1900, you have sort of the over the last overthrow of the fusionists. And the disenfranchisement of African Americans statewide, using a grandfather clause, and ACOC, of course, um, is connected to that in various ways. Mm-hmm. But so you have the 1890s as this series of campaigns, political campaigns, where the po- political issue of the day is white supremacy, where and Julian Carr runs for office in 1900, and on a platform 
platform that the white man must rule or die. I mean, so and he's trying to out white supremacists, all the other candidates that are running for the Democratic nomination. And so what they have to celebrate is the overturning of the outcome of the war, or at least some of the outcomes. They can't get rid of the 13th Amendment, but they try to get rid of the 14th and 15th. And they are successful by the time they put up these monuments. And so they say as much when they're putting up these monuments. We may have lost on in battle, but the principles we cared about have won out. So they, they re- repeatedly say at these dedications that these are not uh, monuments to defeat, but that they were actually victorious. And, and perhaps the funniest one that this happens at is, of course, at uh, the site of Joe Johnson's surrender, that Julian Carr says, you know, it wasn't a defeat. And he's standing there where they surrendered. Uh, There's a lot of... Uh, you know, incoherence and, and contradiction in a lot of the things you report here. Uh, something you said earlier when we were talking about uh, lies and, and how falsehoods get into the historical record, you suggested sometimes it is you know, intentional and political. I think you may make an interesting point that sometimes lying overtly when you and your listeners know it's not true is a way of demonstrating power. Uh, you know, I dare you to call me on this. I, I can say what I want. Uh, and so no, you get some of that. I, I think go, that's go exactly right. I mean, I think this, and this is something we see uh, that Masha Gessen, the, the journalist, has made arguments that we see in our, our politics today. Uh, and I think it's true. I mean, I think when when Julian Carr stands up there in front of an African-American audience and says lies, and they can't say anything back because they're dependent on his money, it is a power play by him. And, and as you point out, he, he has a reputation for being, uh, what, what's the word, you know, patronizing kindly. Uh, uh, he's not violent and malicious toward the African-American population. W.E.B. Du Bois you know, has a good word to say for him. But it, it's, it doesn't come without strings attached. Uh, his beneficiaries can't argue back. We're going to take another short break and come back. I want to ask you about pension fraud, which I thought was a fascinating part of the book. Uh, So we'll do that in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Adam H. Dombey, author of The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking about the book The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory with the author, Adam Dombey. Adam, you have a chapter about pension fraud. In your, your research, you found lots of fraudulent uh, veteran pension applications in the 20th century, which is interesting in itself, but you can see how people might, you know, cheat on a form to try to get something from the government. That's not so uncommon. What does this have to do with the lost cause and Confederate memory? Well, and that's a great question. It's one that Initially, this book was not going to be a book. It was going to be separate articles. I, mm-hmm. I Only over time did I realize that pension fraud and Confederate monuments were tied together. And it took me a while to figure that out for me to make the realization. But what happens is you have a lot of dissent in North Carolina. North Carolina has this sort of, in some ways, the worst record of any Confederate states when it comes to its military record. It has high rates of desertion. Uh, numerous localities where local resistance leads to frontline troops being sent home to, you know, suppress dissent, where bands of deserters are sort of running amok. And this has been largely forgotten. And one of the ways it's forgotten is by basically paying people to forget their dissent, by making it profitable to have been a Confederate. People who previously had said, I was a unionist, change their their story about themselves, and they become remembered in a different way as a noble Confederate. And every sort of pensioner, when they die again and again, they're recalled as a noble Confederate pensioner, despite the fact that some of them had deserted or, or even joined the Union Army or never served at all. And so the lies were not necessarily made to sort of... So, help white supremacy when a guy wrote, sat down to write you know, his, his pension mm-hmm. application. But it has the, the effect of allowing white Southerners to remember all Confederates as devoted Confederates, despite the well, fact that some weren't. I mean, you, you point out the Southern Claims Commission of the federal government paid people back for things that the federal forces had taken from them during the war in the 1870s. So you've got a lot of people filling out those forms in the 1870s 
proving you have to prove you're loyal to the United States first. And they they say yes, I lived in North Carolina, but I was always loyal to the old flag. I supported our troops. I didn't serve the Confederacy. I did this and that. And then they get paid for their losses. But you're saying these same people, 30 years later, when offered the chance to get a Confederate pension, are just as happy to say, oh, yeah, I, I, I'm a Confederate. I was a Confederate. Exactly. I mean, it's it's basically, it's it's how it's, how they're paid to do what they're being to, to what to say, and the they have to toe the line. If they don't toe the line, then their pension may be taken away. And when I say toe the line, I don't just mean they have to push the lost cause, although they have to do that as well. They have to say I was noble Confederate. They can't say I deserted, mm-hmm. but they also have to toe the line frequently in the politics. It's used as a t- f- tool of uh, political patronage, and you have individuals who who lose their pension and have it given back when they promise to vote a certain way. And so these pensions are also connected to white supremacy in the way that they allow political leaders and the people in charge of the pension bureau to basically pay people off to vote a certain way. And it's a a promise. It's often tied to white supremacy in the sort of politics, the political rhetoric when they're talking about opening up pensions in 1900. And then of course, who can apply for these pensions? white people. So it's a way in which you can give welfare only to white Southerners, with a few small examples that are discussed in the fourth chapter, um, a few exemptions. But but by and large, these pensions are only for white Southerners. And so it's a way of giving uh, welfare only to whites. So it, it works on a political level at the time, but it also helps create this myth that the white South was unified uh, that that the stories that other historians have told us since, you know, Philip Paladin writing about the victims, the Shelton Laurel massacre, uh, Judkin Browning writing about shifting loyalties in eastern North Carolina, uh, uh, who am I thinking of, um, the, 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 the Lowry stories, the, the, the various stories of resistance and, and protest against the Confederacy, that were very strong, and as you point out, they lead ultimately the 1890s to the fusion of the uh, People's Party and Republicans into a winning ticket that takes over the state government uh, and doesn't buy into the Democrats' white supremacy. Uh, North Carolina has this really strong anti-Confederate tradition, but it's crushed, uh, and, and not only crushed, but completely forgotten about, where by the mid-20th century, nobody knows about it anymore. It's really quite astonishing. I, I think you're, you you put it well, and I think one thing we need to question as well is how much have historians sort of bought into this this narrative as well unknowingly. Sort of we, we return to the master narrative that we know when we're filling in the gaps on whatever we're arguing, right? Whenever we're sort of, if we're talking about medicine, when we need to sort of fill in the gaps about what happens in battle, we sort of look to whatever the, the the master narrative says, the one that we learned as young undergrads in some cases. And so some of those narratives are still tainted. And so there are aspects of the lost cause that I think are still in the historiography and historians are still sort of blind to, and they need to sort of question. And we need a reassessment of of specific aspects of the war, including how devoted Confederates were to the, to the or how, how devoted white Southerners were to the Confederacy. And 
how much dissent was there and what role did dissent play? I think we do need to sort of apply memory. And one of the things that sort of, you know, Gary Gallagher, I guess it was what, six years ago, argued that memory studies needs to know the history of the war as well. And I don't disagree with him. I think he's right. Right. But I think the historians of the war, when you're looking at the battlefield historians, they also need to know historical memory because I think historical memory can give us a lot of insights, especially when we look at lies, because lies are the place where we're covering over the most troublesome memories. Well, I think it's a really interesting point about the role of historians in transmitting this continued version of the lost cause. As you know, you cannot find a reputable historian who would argue that slavery was not the primary cause of the Civil War. No, no one in academia is contesting that. But these subsidiary myths of white unity, or even more subtle, of, of Confederate military superiority uh, are still frequently, uh, you do still frequently see them appearing. Uh, personally, I, I'm a Western theater guy when I write history myself, and uh, the Confederate superiority story doesn't hold up so well there, where, where they get beaten uh, from one end of the barn to the other, except for Chickamauga, and uh uh, have have you know some of the worst generals in the war against people like Grant, Sherman, and Thomas. But so much of the attention is fo- focused on Lee, Jackson, and Virginia that you get this myth of, of Confederate superiority. And you do see that being told, you're right, that still shows up in textbooks, that the, uh, the individual Confederate soldier is still one of the great warriors of all history. Uh, and so that is something that I think historians need to be conscious of uh, when they when they write that kind of thing unthinkingly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really uh, common problem. And the other thing you see when you're looking at studies of Confederate soldiers is that they frequently overlook sort of aspects that we feel are already covered. So issues of, for instance, the cause of the war. You're right. We, I don't, there is no reputable historian out there who's going to argue the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. Right. And so that one's, that one gets just trashed by every historian but sort of why soldiers fought we can sort of if we look at soldiers as a whole without you know sometimes you'll see books where they sort of treat union and confederate soldiers as just soldiers right we're just going to look at soldiers mm-hmm. and and when you do that you can lose some of the sort of specificity of of southern culture that's leading these men to fight and you know colin woodward for instance has his great book uh, marching masters which is all about sort of racial views of Confederate soldiers. And I think we need to start bringing in a fuller picture of the diversity of, of why Confederates are fighting and, and sort of the uglier side of it sometimes. You know, if they, if the myth that Confederate soldiers fought so nobly, and if we could just ignore the cause and we just focus on how they fought, I think is, is inherently problematic uh, not just because they didn't always fight well, but they didn't always fight nobly. They often fought in ways that included racial massacres. Mm-hmm. Getting back to race, one other topic you talk about extensively in the book, and we don't have time to go into detail, but this will give readers a reason to buy it and read it. Excellent. Uh, the, the question of uh, black soldiers, black Confederate soldiers, again, no reputable historian says, oh yeah, there were tens of thousands, just no one put that in their letters, diaries, after-action reports, or any other contemporary observation. They all kept quiet about it. 
Um, no one's going to make that argument. But there is a segment of the public that does, and they often will point to pension records, uh, and they'll occasionally find uh, black North Carolinians that you found receiving a state pension. Well, doesn't that doesn't that prove that there's black Confederates? And this is this is sort of a uh, Kevin Levine has written the definitive book on this this yes. topic, and I agree firmly with Kevin that not only do we need to debunk these myths, but we need to understand why they were created and what created them. And so I spend a lot of time sort of looking at, at what purpose these myths are serving. And and frequently what, what we find when we look is that these pensions are individuals who present themselves as loyal slaves. And we often don't know what their actual wartime experience was. But in some cases, we know they, they were five years old when the war ended. And so it's sort of a suspect there. But they get paid for it. And everyone knows that they're being paid for playing this role, this role of the loyal slave, which contributes to remembering white soldiers again as noble. And so the the lie of the black confederate is something that does need more, more looking at by scholars, because we need to understand what purpose it's serving. And it's coming out of older lies and creating a new set. And it really is shaping uh, white supremacist ideology today. Now, one of the underlying assumptions of this book uh, is the importance of historians engaging with issues like uh, neo-Confederate beliefs, uh, the black Confederate myth, and so on. Uh, a counter-argument is you just give space to the other side. If you if you argue with a flat earther or an anti uh, or a Holocaust denier, right, you just let them on the same stage. Even that is a bad idea. Is it a bad idea even to argue with black Confederate? So this is a good question. I won't debate someone. I've been asked to debate before, you know, the, the causes of the Civil War. And it's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to play that game. But okay. I think with these, it may not be worth debating them in person. But it is worth looking at why they're creating these lies and what purpose they're serving. Because I think that is important still, even as we, and I think debunking them as a public history, we do need to do at least, not for the people who are pushing it necessarily, but the people who might read it who otherwise don't know better, right? Mm -hmm. These lies are already in the public sphere, and they're already being interpreted. They made it into a Virginia State uh, textbook. For you know, If it's going right. to make it into textbooks, it's there, so we need to debunk it. Well, this book certainly uh, is a, a strong step in that direction. Uh, if uh, listeners, if you've read, you know, James Lowen's neo Confederate neo Confederate reader, and wondered how people could read that and and still make the argument, this book helps helps explain where that argument comes from, where the the lost cause argument uh, comes from historically, and as well as why it continues to be pushed in some quarters today. So uh, if that intrigues you in the least, this is a book you'll want to read, The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. And its author is Adam Dombey, who has been our guest tonight. Adam, thanks very much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.